This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 18th, 2023. I am Charles Hayne, host of the podcast. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. Jason Hellerman. How's it going? And uh, we are going to be talking about updates on the strike. What's going on? It's the only thing most of us are talking about and thinking about. We are going to be talking about uh, the film industry leaving Tarantino behind which I thought was a really interesting sort of quote from Tarantino that went around this week. And then we've got an amazing Ask No Film School about when to know your projects are ready for labs. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. Um, All right, first up this week, The Strike. We're in week two now of the... Week three of the strike, third week, week of the strike, and there's a lot to talk about. They are striking the building where I work. I work in a film school that is in a studio. I gave my students the assignment of joining the picket line. I can't oh, make that God. an official assignment, but I could say, like, you guys should Beautiful. all go. I saw a bunch of my students in the picket line. It's the first time in my life I've walked past a picket line, but we're a school, not a studio. Mm-hmm. And I had, like, meetings. It felt really weird. I was like, I'm walking past the picket line. I never do that. Um, but we've, uh, CUNY and WGA apparently like, it's fine. We are still going to work, but, uh, the lot where I work is deserted. So I know there are a few productions that have stopped because of the strike. And I don't know if any of the productions at our studio stopped because of the strike, but I know it is dead here right now, which is something. I also saw a lot more people. There's a side door to the studio and I saw a lot more people using the side door than I've ever Uh. seen before. So I was like, are, are, are you guys not supposed to be here? But <laughs> We got to um, get some people at that sure. neutral gate watching over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, Paramount has all the entrances covered. So, But, it, but it, it is bizarre for people who are in the position of writer-director where they are being held to their work as directors, but still striking as writers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting yeah. conundrum I think we have going on. I talked to a couple people on the line this week who were in the same spot as you are, Gigi, and a lot of it was like, you know, producers who want me to do a director's pass because whatever, but I'm a writer, like, but I wrote this project under the WGA, so why, you know, I shouldn't be doing any kind of pass, things like that. A lot of it, un- unfortunately, is, um, or fortunately, whatever, it's, you're deciding on your own, you know what I mean? What what feels exploitative, what you know, mm-hmm. what is crossing the picket line in a lot of those like scenarios. But uh, I'll say like in terms of a third week of a strike, the energy is still going high. You know, I was at uh, Sony and Fox last week again. If you're if you're ever at Fox, look for me. I mean, I don't know find my picture. And I uh, bought a wagon for my dog. So I'm going to be bringing him this week because <gasps> uh, he's not a good, not a great walker at 14 years old. But I bought one of those little covered wagons, uh, uh, like an Oregon Trail type uh, blue one with a top. We'll be out there this week. But it's been fun. The WGA, I think, to their credit, is 
doing a really good job at really invigorating the people on the line, not just with food and coffee. You know, this week we had a coffee truck from uh, the How I Met Your Mother writers, and it said mm-hmm. um, paid for with our residuals, which I, I loved. And then they were nominating other, um, let's call them like famous off-air uh, sitcoms to pay with their residuals for these coffee trucks. You know, super fun. Um, obviously, the pizza and donuts are big. We had tacos at one spot. There was a singles night on Wednesday. As a married guy, I did not go to that, but I thought that was very sweet. And they had a singles night and, and mixer. Uh, there's a Taylor Swift like a theme strike, I think, this Wednesday. So, like, there's lots of really fun activities. I know they're planning more for the summer. You know, and look, the strike's not supposed to be a blast, right? Like, we all know it's... It is what it is. Like there's people out there and this is a time. Look, none of us are making any money. Mm-hmm. That can be very frustrating. But I'll say the morale is high because we really believe in this cause. And the one thing yeah. I went on Friday to Fox and it was a solidarity day. Right. So we had people from IATSE, the DGA, SAG. Like, you know, I'm trying to think like all of the United Guilds were out there. and It was really cool just to be. I marched next to a guy from the DGA who was out there being like, all my best stuff came from writers, which was, you know, amazing to see. Uh, there was a ton of um, bigger directors out there. I, I don't know if I'm supposed to like call them out by name or whatever, but like huge people, uh, Academy Award winning directors, just walking, you know, with the plebes like me and my buddy, uh, <laughs> just truly having a, a blast out there, just talking to people, hearing what's so important, being inspired by other people. You know, I. I think I said this on the podcast last week, but again, I walked with someone who has participated, like been in the WGA since the 70s and was out there, you know, an over 80 year old man just setting his own pace with his picket line doing stuff. I think um, there really is a beauty in it and in collective action and collective bargaining and uh, being there with IATSE, with the DGA, with people who I think really believe in the cause and, um, you know, who have their own deals coming up, SAG as well. Uh, it, it's been great being out there. And, you know, I, I think um, an email I got earlier this week and then I'll pass it off to one of you guys. Someone said, well, they're so far apart. Why don't they bring someone in to help talk? You know, why, why isn't that? And, and mm-hmm. I'll say that like that does happen. Sure. So like uh, there's an arbitrator that will be appointed um, to hear both sides, but that won't happen, I think, until you're around 100 days into the strike. Wow. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't expect that to happen until August. It is something that does happen. It's, I believe what happened in 2008. So it does happen. It can happen. You know, we'll see if it does happen this time, uh, but it is something that won't happen until you've been out there for a long time. And I think uh, the big dates we're looking at DJ and SAG start bargaining June 10th. And I think they both would go on strike the 30th. Uh, and a lot of people are saying their deals will affect ours. How will they, you know, what will we all agree on? What will we all be looking for at mm-hmm. the same time? You know, so those are dates to keep an eye on. Um, and it, it come out to the picket lines. It really is a familial style thing, you know, meet some people, shake some hands, press the flesh, as they say, yeah. and get out there and pick it because your future in Hollywood is dependent on it, whether you're in the WGA or not, um, whether you're in the DGA or not, right? What, you know, whether you're mm-hmm. earning your credits, it really is. You're looking at your future for sure. Yeah. And as uh, representing the, but, but in no way covering every single perspective of the pre-WGA, I also wanted to call out the, the element of labs and, and those types of workshops. There are specific labs that are, uh, or um, fellowships that are included in signatories or because, or they're, they're falling under the umbrella of crossing the line if you're engaging with it. I think we touched on this last week, but for example, the Sundance Labs, because they have such 
tight relationships with the studios. The pre-WGA substack has a great explanation of why, but that is considered crossing the line. Obviously, direct studio fellowships, a lot of them we're seeing on pause. I believe Disney put their development workshops on pause. I am also seeing certain organizations where this is not the case, where it's not crossing the line. For example, the Humanitas New Voices Fellowship is, they sent out an email, they've been working with the WGA to clarify that they are not part of or falling under the umbrella of crossing the line if you participate in the workshop. So it's something to keep an eye on. We're actually going to answer an Ask No Film School later today about labs and when you're ready. But something that I've had my finger on the pulse of because it is so critical to the early emerging writer career trajectory. No, I was going to say another thing that was sort of uh, interesting and I think is worth talking about here is the, you know, we've gotten some more public statements from the other side coming out in the last week or so. I know that someone reported to me that uh, Zaslav from Max and, you know, Discovery, Warner Media, whatever that company is now called, apparently said, you know, like, look, and I'm sure this was a statement being made to investors and maybe there was some bravado there. But, you know, we think it's fine. We'll write it out. This won't last forever. People people like working and will want to get back to work. And mm-hmm. that's really true and some, something we think about all the time in film, which is people like to work. We love what we do. Like, one of the biggest challenge of all of this is how many of, like, you know, I know a lot of people with jobs where they're like, my job is not my identity. For almost every writer I know, being a writer is who they are as a yes. person. And so, it's, yeah, A, the fact, the fact that they're willing to strike and not do the thing that makes them who they are is huge. But B, I also think it's an interesting, I like to think a lot about getting out of your own perspective. And like, I think David Zaslav has spent 20 years running a reality TV show company. And I know reality TV show producers, and none of them identifies reality TV show producers. They're all, I do this for a living. Mm-hmm. And they're not willing to push as hard. They're not as... Like, and frankly, they're not paid as well as big movie writers are paid. And so I think it's easier to push reality folk around. And like, it shouldn't be. Reality folk should be better paid. And that's media that people are consuming and people are profiting on. But it's an area where the studios have always had a lot of power. And so Mm -hmm. I think people who are used to working in that world are used to having a lot of power. And I think we're now seeing, you know, the people who love... Secession are not going to watch Secession written by Chet GPT. Like they're just yeah. not going to do it. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to it's not going to do the itch. So I think it's it's interesting to watch both sides of this negotiation and say I think you've got some you know, statements that this is going to be easier fast for the producers. I think there's some underestimating there how much power labor has and how willing they are to keep going. Gigi? Mm-hmm. To your point about how um, in the long run, like everyone wants to be working, uh, I do want to call out an example of a development executive who was my mentor in a lab. Uh, We had time on the calendar to meet and give feedback on a script of mine that is not in development with this uh, streaming company. But she specifically reached out and said, should we reschedule this meeting given you know, we, I want to be mindful of your standing. And it was really nice to see somebody in that position proactively working in solidarity and also, you know, making sure that like 
I understand that the line is still open for after the strike. And I so I think that made me feel even more empowered as someone who is identifies with as being a writer and a director and somebody on this creative side and and seeing how even when they're on the other side, they understand the value and what we're fighting for and what we're trying to protect. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, just taking, um, let's say, like the creative pulse of a lot of my friends out here, you know, um, many of my friends are executives. It's just the it's the way it is. It's the lay of the land. You know, you I came up as an assistant. I went off to become a writer. They went off to become presidents and vice presidents of different places. I think a lot of them are on our side, right? Nobody gets into this business. If you're if you get in this business and you rise in the ranks, hopefully you love storytelling, right? And I'd say like the best executives understand that storytelling come from creatives, not from computers, right? So like I, I do think there's a, a big thing there. And you know, the more we can get them at on our side, and the more it is obviously like Charles said, you know, I think there's been a dramatic shift in who runs Hollywood, right? Who's at the very top echelons that are making these deals that don't want to give money away. As uh, someone who went to graduate school at Boston University, I I can say that I am uh, fully ashamed that they're having Zaslav as their commencement speaker and haven't rethought of it. And if you want to join the picket lines, uh, the WGA will be picketing that commencement, which I'm sure will be the Saturday uh, after this episode drops. There are people picketing in Philadelphia, in Boston, in Georgia, uh, I think in Austin. So like, there's they're all over the country. You look it up. You know, if any of those places are close to you, I'd encourage you to join the line. And um, the more people we can have on our side, the better. I think, you know, it's great to hear from executives who are on our side who are doing this. And, um, you know, I hope more of them are. I'd say, like, make your voices heard to your bosses. You know, I like we're all taking a risk not being paid. Um, I won't mention the executive's name, but uh, one of them went viral on Twitter yesterday. I don't know if either of you saw this. It was an executive who was like, Writers need to read the room because a lot of executives, because of the strike, are getting fired right now for cost cutting things. And I was like, hey, guess guess who also is not working? <laughs> like you're collecting, <laughs> you're collecting a weekly salary like, I, you know, world's smallest violin for someone waiting around because they have no work to do, yeah. <laughs> getting a paid vacation. I get that some of you being fired. It's awful. I don't you know, Hollywood downsizing has been an article we've covered in no film school many times. We've covered it several times this year. Just I think Disney's laying off 7,000 people. Like it's, it is horrible. Tens of thousands of people are being laid off, but like every writer, you know, is also been laid, has also been laid off. Like I, I was on a TV show. I didn't get paid for any of the work in May because we went on strike. It's like, I totally get that. That was a lot of money that I for I'm foregoing because I believe in what we're doing out here. And also, you know, cause I'm not trying to be a dirty rat scab, but like, this is, this is the the place we're at. So, you know, like executives, if you're going to make your voice heard, I think, uh, a, be careful what you say, maybe consult a writer before you say it. But, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the solidarity is needed and the best executives are on our side and the ones that aren't, aren't. And, um, if you're in any city across America, chances are there's some sort of Hollywood production happening there check out the WGA website, look for other strikes, look for people in your place. It's not just New York and Los Angeles. It it is happening in those other major hubs. Um, So check it out. The other thing to remember is, yes, I feel bad for executives losing their job because everybody's out just here working. But if you get fired from your company for cost savings right now, A, your company is probably going to fire you anyway. Mm -hmm. Like the people they are firing right now are not the people that they're hoping to keep long term. 
B, you got fired, so you're getting unemployment insurance, which no one on strike is getting covered by unemployment insurance. They're all freelancers, which doesn't get paid in unemployment. Yeah. So your unemployment insurance is probably still, even if the check is smaller than what you're making, is probably still better than what 95% of the writers that you were hiring were making. And you've got six months of that while you look for another job, which will ride out. I mean, we're all hoping this strike lasts less than, less than six months. So like... I have empathy. People love their jobs and they want to do great at it. But I also am like, come on, we're trying to make sure we're trying to make sure that there's an industry for scripted entertainment that we care about. That is good. That is that is touching and emotional. And we still talk about 30 years later. And um, that's what the writers are fighting for. The writers are fighting for good stuff paid properly. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On the front of the change of the industry, Tarantino was out this week with an interesting interview where he talked about the industry leaving him behind. And I thought, you know, when I teach, I teach students, they're excited about the industry, but you know, even students are well aware that we are currently in a world that is largely IP driven and sort of auteur directors like Tarantino, what he's talking about, like the world where the director is the one getting made getting films made regularly there's like four left right yeah. there's like yep. tarantino and Shyamalan and nolan who still can cons- consistently get whatever they want financed finance maybe eastwood and spielberg but then spielberg talks a lot maybe. about the trouble he had getting lincoln financed yeah and you know period piece difficult but it's still spielberg with fucking you know adam driver and um the other one actually playing Lincoln in it. Um, Daniel like, Day-Lewis. But Daniel Day-Lewis. But Daniel it was hard Day. to find it. So the number yeah. of people who are like, I'm just going to be able to make things no matter what, are like Eastwood, Nolan, Tarantino, and Shyamalan. And that's it. Yeah. That's who's left in the industry who are like, it, it doesn't need IP. It doesn't really need a star. And people will just, you know, get to make it. And the industry Shut has up. changed. Now, whenever people talk about any change, I always like to say, like, the industry's kept changing from the beginning and that from silent descent. Like, the industry's never stopped changing. It's like, it's not like it was the same industry for 100 years straight. Like, the industry that he's sad about losing is pretty much started in the 70s. And it's like the 70s to the 90s was the peak of this, like, there's going to be 10 or 15 people who get to make these movies. But it does feel like we are at the tail end of that. Yeah, I think Tarantino's exact quote, I'll read it to you here. You know, he was being asked uh, about, you know, working on his 10th film. We know it's called The Movie Critic. Find out more information on NoFilmSchool.com about that and why it's going to be his 10th film. And really, he was like, you know, it's my 10th film because I've always planned it this way. And also because he feels like Hollywood has, is not around anymore. What he said is, yes, it's a shame. It's not the Hollywood I knew. Will the kind of cinema experience I grew up with still exist in five or six years? We'll We'll see. I certainly have, haven't left Hollywood. Hollywood has left me. I'll probably be the last one to turn off the light there. I'll probably be around a few more years than Hollywood itself. And I, I think that's like maybe the most the image terrifying. image of him turning yeah. off the light. 
Yeah. The image I mean, of him turning yeah. off the light, closing the door and walking out was like the most cin- cinematic and sad yeah. thing I've read in a long time. Absolutely. Brutal. And and it's tough, I think. Look, yeah, we might be at four people who get these checks and and a lot of them like, you know, Scorsese's are around begging Apple to do stuff and bringing DiCaprio in. You know, it's like you we're in a weird we're in a weird place and, and we'll Harken back, I think Ava DuVernay once said, she's like, you know, some of these days are for your heart's work, right? If you don't get to, if, you're, if your main job isn't your heart's work, you do your heart's work on the weekends, you know? And, and I always took that to heart, pun intended, um, just because I do love, I love what I do so much. It's so important to me to be a storyteller. And I think I very nakedly am always working out whatever giant issue I have in in screenplay form, you know, whether, you know, uh, I think anyone that's read my stuff can figure it out as they go. But uh, I, I don't not, not the master of subtlety, but it's hard to think about a Hollywood where people are like, we don't care what you have to say as uh, a creative person. What we care about is how to incorporate Legos into it. You know, and, and I think that's that's a scary thought. And for Tarantino, someone who obviously is unabashedly working through his passions, um, you know, one by one, feature by feature. And, you know, eventually I think he has a 10 part TV show coming out. He's going to write. But like the oh, idea, wow. the idea that not being able to uh, access that or not not having the creative outlet for that is is scary. And I think as someone who's like only made one movie and like would love to make 10. Uh, for me, it's like that nervousness of like, well, how else will I get it out? Right. Do I have to come up with something else? Is Hollywood going to be the job that I hate and I'll have to find my heart's work somewhere else? You know, and I, I think that's scary. I mean, I'm sure Gigi, just someone who's like putting things together yourself. It's got to yeah. be. Yeah. I, I often I feel like the way that I write right now is limited by or this could be a positive thing as an emerging writer but i i try to write things that i know i could potentially make you know none of my well the thing i'm writing now there is a helicopter scene but it's not exploding so i i do feel like i have just been conditioned to write within the indie space and you know we talked a couple weeks ago with charles about the golden elevator, but, but that feels like the only way in. And it, it's just an interesting space to be in, to be limiting myself that way and, and pulling back that way. I have a, a a close friend who wrote this project that is a period piece and has a sort of fantasy element to it. And it's dark and it has this sort of nineties nostalgia magic, a la the princess bride to it. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever read period. And my favorite thing that I've ever read by him. And I am like, this has to be taken out into the world. This would be an iconic film and something that I know I would, you know, that is it filling the void that I feel uh, as an audience. And he and his manager have very pragmatically agreed that now is not the time to take it out because he needs to have his first and maybe second sub five million sub three million this is a 60 million dollar movie to do it right and it is such a bummer because the story and the world is so incredible and i hope to god it can be made so i can tell you guys what it is but it 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 bums me out that you know, even Quentin Tarantino is feeling the pullback. And it, 
does feel like the quality suffers when we're being held to a bottom line or held to IP tied to Legos. Though I must say, I am very excited for the Barbie movie. Well, the Barbie movie, I think, is a different animal. I, look, I mean, um, I saw um, Franklin Leonard speak the other day, and one of the questions, one of the students asked a question about IP, and he said, and I know he said this a bunch of times, where he's like, IP or not IP, I don't care. I care about good. Is it good? Like, you can make good things within IP, you can make good things outside of IP. And I, like, you know, separate from that quote, which, like, I loved, and I hope the students got, like, We've been doing IP in the Hollywood industry for 100 years, right? Like yeah. Charlie Chan, a horribly racist stereotype, but was like a 1930s series of detective movies about a Chinese-American detective. Um, and like, you know, problems with it. I'm not saying Charlie Chan was a good thing, but I'm saying IP has been a thing in Hollywood for 100 years because it lets marketing be cheaper. So like, you know, the trick is like, can you do an interesting thing within IP universe? which I think why we're all excited about Greta Gerwig's take on Barbie. I think it's yes. going to be fascinating because I have faith in her and her work is so good and interesting. And and so I can't wait to see what she does within that IP space. So mm -hmm. like I'm open to the possibility that IP is possibly cool. What bums me out is the IP is the idea that IP is the only option. Yes. That like careers like the streak Bogdanovich had in the early 70s doing Last Picture Show and... Uh, Paper Moon and like all of these beautiful, amazing movies that Paper weren't existing IP. I Although Last movie. Picture Show was already a book. Mm. Uh, it the thing with IP. My definition for IP is not because somebody I, I watched somebody have an argument once where they were like, "Yeah, well, we adapted this play, but no one had seen it, but it was still IP." And it's like for me, the term IP is: Does it save you marketing money? Is it yeah. a known intellectual property? And I'm not sure that Last Picture Show was a big hit novel that saved people marketing money. I don't I don't know enough of the history of the sales on that book, but I don't I don't know that it was like a um John Grisham style right. everyone in America had read it at the beach. We're um, gonna crawl that scene. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that that is IP. That is a book that like has a waiting fan base. But I just I'm I think what I am bummed about is the idea that there's not gonna be an avenue for just weird individualistic non-IP stuff as well to be one of the lanes. Cause I like a lot of different lanes. I liked the Super Mario Brothers movie. I thought it was good. I didn't even mind that Chris Pratt wasn't doing an Italian accent. It was much weirder in the trailer, but it's <laughs> totally fine in the movie. It completely it in works. The movie. Oh, it completely works. And the yeah, movie is correct. solid. I mean, watching it with my niece and my daughter and my nephew really my niece, my daughter, my nephew helped quite a bit. Like, obviously, I was seeing it with the right audience. Jack Black is great. Like, you can do great stuff within IP. Yeah, I love uh, Dungeons and Dragons. You have to be able to do non-IP. Oh, I yeah, hear it's, it's great. Yeah, it's it's it's. Yeah. Um, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head there, Charles. It's like the idea that you know we we always say like uh, you're breaking into Hollywood, right? And what's the way to break into Hollywood? Like, Gigi and I had this talk over beers a couple weeks ago. It's like being your own refined voice, right? This is what I have to say. I'm unique. This is my perspective. And then when you get to Hollywood, the idea is like, okay, well, how do I take that and plug it into something else? Well, that doesn't always work. And I think a lot of times what we're brushing up against is like the idea of like, you want me to be so unique and so interesting with my own point of view. But as soon as I get here, the thing you want me to do is so different than what I know how to do. You know what I mean? And, and it, that's why it takes a lot longer to break in and I, I now than I think it did beforehand because we're not making those things. Like as soon as you're here, I, I always tell the story of like, 
I had sold uh, Shovel Buddies, the script I broke in with, and it was about kids in high school who steal their best friend's dead body uh, and drive around with it in Philadelphia, like in the first night. And that was like a script that put me on the map. And everyone was like, it's so weird and it's insane and it's very funny and very sad and whatever. You get all the accolades and I printed them out and put them on my refrigerator and sent them to my mom. It was like, I told you I shouldn't. Have you been got her. I got. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, you do all that. And like, I remember the first thing I came in on with a big pitch was like an adaptation of, a, of an iPhone game called Plants vs. Zombies. And I just was like, I remember going in and pitching and they were like, this is so weird. Your version of this is like like way weirder than even a Plants vs. Zombies game could be. And I think like it got me far enough to hear, but also like to understand like what I had done was not commercial. At the same time, I was pitching on a Flight of the Navigator reboot at Disney. And I remember going in and doing that pitch and they were like, the movie you just pitched us, there's nothing wrong with it. It just would only cost $5 million. And like, it, we need this movie to cost 60. Like, where's the F-16 mm. chasing it? You know, like mine was about a kid breaking into a government lab. Like, like it was very different. You know, and I think it's like we're not prepared for what that is. And um, Hollywood, you know, for what it's worth, then I've spent the last decade figuring out, OK, how do you do that F-16 chase? How do you do these things? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like um, organizing those thoughts and coming up with those bigger ideas. But but I do think the idea is like I came here to be able to tell the stories that I think I know best. And then if there's IP that I love being able to take a swing and trying to do my version of it. Uh, and I always think that's the best way for anybody. But the scary thing is right now, the way Hollywood's working, what they really want is you to spec your screenplay that's weird and fun and then come in and automatically be ready to find that version of the Mario movie, which I don't think most people can do. Right. I watched that and I was like, oh, that was entertaining. I don't think I could have written that movie. I don't think I would have been right for it. And I don't think I could have done it. So that window of when you're breaking in Hollywood, it's like you're kicking down the door or you're slipping through a window to break in. But once you're inside the house, the room's closing in on you. You know what I mean? Like it's like that Indiana Jones Temple of Doom uh, room with the, the, you know, the floor and ceiling are coming together and you're like, oh my God, how do I get into the next one? And I think like that's the scary metaphor that we're all dealing with. And it's funny to see Tarantino on the other side being like, is anyone else going to make it through this, you know, whatever ch- chamber of doom? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, um, we'll keep trying at least for now, but it is uh, difficult. It also remains good advice, right? That there are still people out there that you don't get to direct the $60 million movie usually until your $5 million movie has done really well, or you've written 10 of the $50 million movies, but Mm -hmm. like your spec script can get you pitching on those 50 to $80 million movies. And like people forget that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, depending upon whether the spec gets made and whatnot, like there's still a thing, but figuring out the journey to getting there is still about figuring out who you are and what your voice has to offer and finding a way to figure out what that voice looks like. I, you know, I go back to Ryan Coogler all the time, but you know, he like, he knew he was going to be pitching Creed even before Fruitvale Station. I think he even tried to pitch Creed really? before. Yeah. It was an idea he had very early and he was like. I know within, I mean, Ryan Coogler is obviously a very, very smart person, but he was like, I know from within the IP universe, the IP I would like to go after first when I get in a situation where I'm able to go after IP. It is a different journey than people made in the 90s, but it is a journey now to getting places. Yeah, And it's not a, yeah, have some plans. Just an idea. Like, I'm sure Ryan Coogler was smart enough to have three or four IPs that he was interested in. Absolutely. Where he was like, oh, I have a, I have a Rocky idea. I have a 
Like, I have an idea in this world. Black Panther might have even been an idea at that point. I don't know. But, like, str- a strategy. Have a, like, like I think it is a really smart strategy to be like, oh, okay. I know a spec can get me meetings, and here's three or four IPs where I think I have some ideas. The yeah. same way where in the ni- even in the 90s, if you were writing, if you were trying to break into TV, you wrote spec scripts for shows you loved. Right, like, right. That's not a bad idea in movies. That's so, such speaking a great connection. This, I, I just want to say you guys have both inspired me. This is my homework. This is my emerging writer homework is to figure out which IPs I'd want to make my own. And, and I think one of the reasons I'm specifically drawn to the Barbie movie is I know the Greta Gerwig script that she wrote with Noah Baumbach will do justice to the story that they're telling. And they've created it within this universe. That's what I'm really excited about versus sort of something that's more churning it out, hanging on the IP as a crutch. I think of, you know, just in the last two weeks, I've been watching Dead Ringers, the show, and Fatal Attraction, the show. And then I watched Fatal Attraction, the feature film, this weekend. And I was like, wait, what is the moral of this story? A guy cheats on his wife, gets somebody pregnant, and then kills her because she's like, support my child that is yours. Anyway, sidebar. But I do think that is such a smart way to be thinking about the career and to contextualize it, Charles, as similar to writing for a spec for TV shows. So that just sort of, you blew my mind wide open. It is a wild thing to think about Fatal Attraction in the 80s <laughs> and remaking it now. Like, wild. Yeah, when you, well, I'll say like quickly, you know, for any aspiring writers, directors, whatever, at some point you'll have a man, like agent manager reach out, you'll sit and talk with them, you'll have a general, you'll decide whether or not you should work together. And a lot of it is like, um, if you have those IP ideas, it's a good time to bring it up because they are going to be looking for the most commercial aspect of you because they want to see how they can get you paid or what you can do or what you have. And if there's a book from childhood that you're like, I have a take on whatever. I, I think last year I pitched on Hungry Hungry Hippos, the movie. Like there's stuff that exists out there. Uh, like I'm, hopefully I didn't sign an NDA for that, but, uh, you know, probably not. But uh, they're not going to say That's <laughs> like I won't tell you my pitch, but like it, it's. It's no matter how ridiculous the idea is, if you think there's IP, if you think there's whatever, the way forward in this industry right now is commerciality plus your own voice. And, and if you can find your Greta Gerwig thing into whatever it is, sock and boppers, I don't know. You pick your favorite thing. Uh, come have it. You should have those pitches ready. It's part of being a professional. I think they'll love that you have it. They'll also probably have IP they want to bring you. That's a lot of what these meetings are now, pre-strike. Most of my meetings were, oh my God, we love your spec. What an original idea. What an incredible voice. Anyway, here's a bunch of magazines we own. If there are any articles in here you want, you know, and I think it's that kind of thing. Keep those tabs, print those things out. Like have your little database. Because um, when you get in the rooms, at some point you might be the person generating the IP for them, you know, so. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Awesome. All right. Well, on to the next final topic. We had a really amazing Ashton Film School question. Uh, Gigi, do you want to read it? And then we can go through the answer. Absolutely. Okay. So we received uh, this email from 
Lena S. She says, hey, everyone. First of all, thank you for the podcast because I've learned so much from you and really appreciate your commitment to championing indie filmmaking and self-taught artists. Yay. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm in the process of writing my first shorts, and I'm excited to get them made guerrilla style. Still, I'm looking to the future and thinking about how to improve my craft and how to meet people that could help me get my shorts made more, quote-unquote, professionally. A lot of your guests have gone through labs or residencies or even workshops, but I'm having trouble parsing how advanced your project should be for you to seek out these opportunities. Can you be a total beginner like me, or should you have a few projects under your belt? What kind of credentials should you have, and how do you know your work is ready to be seen for judgment, quote-unquote? I also don't live in the U.S., so these opportunities look different to me, and I don't know that I could ever be eligible for Sundance Labs, for example. Thank you so much for your consideration and looking forward to hearing your taking on this. So I, I love this question because it feels like the questions that I was asking myself four years ago when I was starting from scratch and had never done anything or worked on a film set even. And I think there's a couple of things I want to call out. First, I think you're doing the right first step, Lena, which is writing shorts and preparing to make them guerrilla style. We've talked a lot on the podcast of the importance of honing your skills and doing it in a low stakes situation. And that's where you find your your voice as a director, as a writer, and you also learn so much by doing. So I think the first phase is creating in a space that lets you just learn by doing. But then there is a new a phase where you want to make things that are more professional. And I, I, I would say that when it comes to submitting to labs, I don't think it'll be counted against you if your projects are not projects that have a huge budget behind them. I think that especially when applying for labs, they're looking for people who have done the work to have a foundation, uh, a baseline uh, that shows the people who are selecting you for the labs that you are ready for the next stage of your career, which doesn't necessarily mean things have to be shiny and polished and have professional hair and makeup and all of that stuff. I think that if the story stands out and what you've been able to pull together stands out, like people will look past things that require budgets. The other thing that I think is important when it comes to this first stage of applying to labs is looking at it like an investment in your career and knowing that you will be rejected from them. And often it takes multiple attempts to get in so this is going to be a years-long process and a years-long learning process. I I had applied to labs over the course of the last four years. I've only started to get into labs the last year, literally the last calendar year. I've gotten into three labs. And so there's this, this piece of advice that my producer, Kyle Scott, told me on my very first short film. This was in terms of film festivals, but, he, but I think it applies to labs as well. He said, it takes laurels to get laurels. That is film festival laurels. And so with my first short film, for example, I had a wide net of applications and festivals that I submitted to. But when 
it came to my second and third shorts, I was way more picky with where I was submitting. So I do think that it's an important thing when applying to labs to apply to, yes, the big ones, because they will track your applications over the course of many years and and know when you've advanced stages. So it's sort of like the way to be building relationships early on, but also lesser known labs. So I ended up applying and getting into a lab that was running their first writing lab ever. And that was, I think, something that opened the door to other labs. So those are sort of my top line notes on this early process. I would just add to that a couple of things. The first off is, you know, Laurels Get Laurels is great advice and that it's multiple applications that matter. Miranda July always talks about how many applications she did to Sundance Lab until me and you and everyone, you know, finally got in. And it was like several years of applying. And that's, there's no shame in that. There's no shame, you know, I, I used to tell the story all the time of the number of people I know who like moved to LA for three months and then were like, I guess this isn't happening and left. And like, that's not how it works. You have to get to know people. They have to get to know you. You have to get on people's radar. It takes an incredibly long time to build up all those relationships. There's one exception. The really handsome dude from Troy famously showed up in LA and a week later was cast in Troy, but he is very, very handsome and a very good actor. So we're going to rule. Which is not natural to be not, that handsome yeah. and that talented. No. So, you know, he's the exception that proves the rule. The rest of us, it's long relationship building over time. The other thing you mentioned in your comment is you're international and you wonder if these even apply to you. And I, I just want to point out, like, you should start reading every year the Sunday, Sundance announcements of who they're letting in. It's 85% are international. Like, Sundance is working very hard to internationalize. If you look at the list from 1992, I'm sure it's mostly North America, but Every year, they're working very hard to try and find the voices internationally. And I know a lot of other labs are as well, that they're trying to diversify the pipeline and look to this wide swath of voices, you know. So I think that there's no, you shouldn't count yourself out because you're not already in Los Angeles or in New York. Um, you can launch a career and have a career from all sorts of places now. And you really should just get in the habit. The other thing I, I want to tout in terms of how do you know your projects are ready for these things is as soon as you possibly can, you need to find a group of people that you're developing mm -hmm. projects with because, you know, people forget in the industry, you're mostly developing in groups. You're writing alone, but you're in a writer's room as a group. You're developing with producers as a group or agents or managers or other reps. Your development is a group activity. So the closer you can get to creating that with a writer's group with your peers locally where you're meeting regularly and you're developing projects together, A, your projects will get better. B, you can rely on your group to help you know when it is ready to go out. You can rely on people you trust who've watched the project develop over time who can say, oh yeah, I feel like this is what it, I feel like this project is in a good place to represent its potential, which is where you want it to be when you're going out to labs, right? Because uh, the lab, hopefully you're going to continue developing in the lab and it'll improve. And then best case scenario, it gets optioned. You're going to work with the producer and maybe a director who gets hired on board and they're going to develop it to be even stronger. So you just want to get it to that place where it it shows that it is strong material deserving of continual development. And then you want to go out with it. And the best way to decide that, obviously, your inner voice, but a group mm -hmm. is incredibly useful. I second that because my writer's group has been critical to developing all 
projects that I've been working on in the last two years. One other element that I like to do to pressure test if a project is lab ready is if I send it to somebody who doesn't know me, doesn't owe me anything, and usually I do this through a, a coverage service, do they understand and do they follow the story? There are people, there are, there have been times where I receive feedback from these anonymous script coverage services where, you know, they may not like my voice or my taste, or they may say that I'm just trying to, quote, be Aaron Sorkin, which I think if you receive, I know it was so rude. Um, And and so I think there's a a place for pushing back against uh, feedback like that. That's not helpful or constructive. But if somebody who doesn't know you or owe you anything or like you because they don't know you or they don't have any baggage that is tied to you and they read your script and they can follow it, then I think it's ready to be submitted. If your mom loves it, ask someone else, you know, red flag, (laughs) red flag, red flag. Exactly. Always. I'll just, you know, I don't have too much experience with labs or submitting, but I'll say that um, when I was in both undergrad and graduate school, uh, both Penn State and BU have these like um, awards they give you, monetary awards where you get a mentor and you get to do whatever. And I remember you have to apply to them and do whatever. And I was always a finalist and never, never a winner. And, And I remember just losing consistently at that every single year I was in college and then being like, well, it'll be different when I'm in grad school. And then I lost consistently in grad school, the exact same thing. And at the time, and still like, is there a little bitterness there? Absolutely. But uh, the one thing I did was just say like, okay, well, how can I get undeniable, right? How can I get to a place where like, you can't ignore me. You can't give it to the pithy little whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like, and I just tried to keep getting better. I don't I like look back now. And I'm like, I wonder if I could write a short now that wins. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of other baggage that goes into that and you do whatever. And but uh, but the point is, I'm, I'm still writing for me. Right. I'm still trying to get better. I'm still trying to figure these things out and, and do whatever. And a lot of times we because Hollywood or, or filmmaking in general, right, not even just here internationally can feel so hard to get into. Right. How do I do this? Not everyone's going to have like an incredible first feature or like idea or or like magical spec that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to get into these labs, to get into these fellowships, right? When the real pressure should just be like, how can I get better myself? How do I do this? And, you know, for me, we have a really big article on nofilmschool.com about the coverage services that I think are worth it um, with the exact coverage of what I got back on a script that I'd submitted to them. But like, you know, for like you do want that. You want to see if like a completely random, not tidy person has the visceral reaction you want. But I I would also say that like you're building some, you're building yourself as much as you're building your project, right? So it's like, maybe it's not getting into the fellowship, maybe it's not gonna do whatever, but like consistently applying is an admirable thing, right? It's part of it. Like, mm-hmm. but so is the rejection, right? It's like, think, uh, is it, yeah, Giannis, uh, Tito, Kembo, you know, yeah, celebrate. There's no failure, right? There's, there's lessons to learn, there's whatever. I kind of do believe there is failure, but I think it's like, fail upward, you know, uh, everyone else does it. Take these lessons, build on them, get better, um, apply different places, try to make something, you know what I mean? Like if you can't do whatever, I think there's uh, a lot of different things and, you know, it's, it's an interesting marker. You know, you want to push back, you want to do whatever, keep applying. But at the end of the day, what you're 
doing is you're being an artist, right? You are putting your art out there and you're just basically asking a subjective panel whether or not they want to help you with it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're good or bad or not good enough. Um, a lot of times it just means this is your taste and you're trying to figure it out. So if you don't get in the first time, apply, apply. I saw Miranda July on the picket lines, by the way. Uh, you know, keep going, uh-huh. do whatever can, but no matter what, don't make it like if I don't get into this lab, I'll never make it right. Some of it's just going to be yeah. how do I how do I get better? How do I keep getting my work in front of people? I think, look, I broke in with Shovel Buddies in 2013. It was on the blacklist. I wasn't on the blacklist again until 2022. Right. It's like I but it took me a decade to meet people, to have everyone be like, oh, my God, I yeah. love that script. Come pitch on this. Come do whatever, like chase, uh, you know, a thousands of projects that are never going to happen, write more specs, get things set up, let those fail. You know, it's it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? And the fellowships and labs yeah. are just the starting line for most people. And you guess what? You can start other places too. So, you know, find it, do it. But if you get in, they're amazing launch points. They're incredible. I've been a mentor for a couple different ones. It, they're totally worth it. If you can get in there, I, I wholeheartedly believe in those things. But don't make it the measure of who you are because that's what your work is, you know, and you could figure that out and keep going. I also, I think that you said a really good point, which is keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Like always keep getting better. The one thing I think a lot of people do is they decide, all right, I'm at a certain level and I'm going to keep trying and hitting my head against the wall. And it's like, theoretically, when Gigi went from not getting into labs to getting labs, she probably learned some things and grew in those four years so that much. helped the projects get better. So like reread every every book I've ever reread, I learned a new thing the second time I mm. read it. So even if you've read 20 screenwriting books, like go back and reread all 20 of those screenwriting books, yeah. because now that you've written two or three screenplays, you will view the things they are giving you differently and you will you will learn something that will blow your mind where you're like, oh, Oh, how did I miss that the first two times I read this book? Totally. I think that's such good advice. And, you know, you're right, Charles. I did get, I got so much better in just, just by iterating and just by staying curious and learning. And, and I, I do believe in celebrating rejections. I think Stephen King put all his rejections on a, on a board because it means you are putting yourself out there. I also heard from somebody that if you are a semi-finalist or a finalist for these, put them in your bio because it it means that you have checked a certain, you've crossed a certain threshold. And there's other context for why you may not get into a lab. If there are two pilots about a dairy cow Ponzi scheme, as my project was, <laughs> that was twice a finalist for Sundance Labs, but if there are two of those, you can't have two. And they're developing a slate to that is robust. So know that a, being a semifinalist, uh, being a runner-up, like is a win as well. And they'll remember you in the future. So that was something that was helpful for me. For sure. All right. What a great week. Uh, we will see everybody out on picket lines if you're in one of the major markets that have them or the smaller markets that have them. And then we will talk more uh next week and we will see how things are going that is this week on the no film school podcast for me i'm on the internet mostly at mastodon and uh yeah charleshand.com i'm at lost in graceland find me on twitter at jason hellerman or email me jason at nofilmschool.com if you have questions if you want to see more articles if you want to yell at me i'll forward it to my mom you know she'll she'll hunt you down 
But uh, but yeah, red flag. Uh, yeah, red flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She'll tell you why your your screenplays are great. Yeah.